It's Tuesday, November 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has ordered the Pentagon not to remove Chief Petty Officer Edward Gallagher from the Navy SEALs. Gallagher was at the center of a high-profile war crimes case where he was convicted of posing for photographs with the body of a teenage ISIS captive. Navy Secretary Richard Spencer also resigned over the issue because he reportedly proposed a private compromise with the White House that would have let Gallagher retire as a SEAL despite the outcome of an upcoming peer review process. Wesley Morgan, military affairs reporter for Politico, joins us for all the details. Next, we will tell you about El Mencho, the most powerful drug kingpin you've never heard of. Now that El Chapo is behind bars for good, authorities have turned their attention to the leader of the CJNG cartel, which has 5,000 members spread across every continent except Antarctica. Reports say that the cartel uses ruthless tactics including acid baths, decapitations, and even cannibalism. Beth Warren, investigative reporter for the Louisville Courier-Journal, joins us for more on the drug kingpin El Mencho. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So when you have a system that allows Sergeant Bergdahl to go, and you probably had five to six people killed, nobody even knows the number, because he left, and he gets a slap on the wrist if that... And then you have a system where these warriors get put in jail for 25 years. I'm going to stick for our warrior. I will stick up for the warriors. Joining us now is Wesley Morgan, military affairs reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Wesley. Thanks very much for having me. Defense Secretary Mark Esper has fired the Navy's top official, Navy Secretary Richard Spencer, over this whole ordeal over Navy Chief Petty Officer Edward Gallagher. Let's start off there, Wesley. Tell us what the story behind Edward Gallagher is, and then we can get into why Richard Spencer uh, has resigned now. It's a little bit of a complex story with Chief Gallagher. He was the senior enlisted member of a Navy SEAL platoon in Iraq a couple years ago, advising Iraqi forces. During that deployment, he was alleged to have stabbed to death a wounded teenage ISIS prisoner. He was later acquitted of those charges at court-martial. But he was convicted of a different charge, which was posing for a photo with the dead body of the fighter after one of the witnesses had changed his testimony and said that he, the witness, in fact, had been the one to kill the detainee rather than Gallagher, which had been the prosecution's case. So Gallagher got off on the main offense, but the Navy still demoted him. And then what happened most recently is about a week and a half ago, at the same time that President Trump pardoned two Army officers of war crimes that they'd either been charged with or convicted of, He also restored Gallagher to his previous rank of chief. And then shortly after that, last week, it came out that the headquarters responsible for Navy SEALs was convening a board process that would have potentially kicked Gallagher out of the Navy SEALs. And President Trump didn't want any of this to happen. He wanted him to be restored to his original ranking and then obviously so that Edward Gallagher could then retire with all of his titles and everything. So this is where Navy Secretary Richard Spencer comes in. And he wanted there to be a process, as you mentioned, this board to oversee it. But then Defense Secretary Mark Esper said that Spencer wanted to or had proposed some deal to the White House that said, well, he can retain his trident pin, he can retain his rank, and he can retire as a SEAL also. It's very confusing. And we've only heard Esper's side of the story so far. We haven't heard Spencer comment on what Esper is saying that he did. But what Esper 
says, and he provided a little detail speaking to reporters at the Pentagon this morning, is that essentially at the same time that Spencer was publicly saying that he supported the board process, convening these boards where fellow SEALs would decide whether Gallagher would remain in the SEALs, he privately was in communication with the White House proposing some type of compromise wherein if President Trump promised not to interfere with the board process, Spencer would himself guarantee somehow that at the end of the board process, whatever its outcome, Gallagher would still retire as a SEAL. The way Esper described it, he said for something like that to happen, someone would have to compromise their integrity. And that this was part of why he fired Spencer. That sounds like it could have been an even bigger mess. Let's say the board says he should be ousted or shouldn't retain his rank. And Spencer's saying, well, I'm going to make it so that he can retain all that stuff. That would just be an even bigger controversy later on. I think for his part, Navy Secretary Richard Spencer also had said something about that he didn't agree with the president on this whole front, that he didn't agree on the key principles of good order and discipline. So he seemed to be all over the place, especially if this is true, that he had some deal that he was proposing to the White House. In his resignation letter, which actually doesn't use the word resignation in it, he acknowledges his termination in the letter. In that letter, he makes no mention of any of these communications with the White House, which the Pentagon says are the reason that Defense Secretary asked for his resignation. Esper's letter is entirely in terms of saying that he didn't see eye to eye with Trump on good order and discipline, and that he could not in good conscience follow an order that would undermine that, implying that there was an order coming to subvert the board process. So it's very confusing. Defense Secretary Mark Esper did say that the president gave him verbal instruction to stop the process. There's peer review board. The president basically got what he wanted in this situation. But why did they want to take it out of this peer review board process? I think he said that it would just be untenable, that they didn't want to drag anybody further along into this process. What Esper said was that in the wake of the revelations about what Spencer was doing with the board process or was planning to do, going through with the board would only complicate things more. Esper and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, had on Friday recommended to Trump that the board process go through. As of Friday, that was still what they wanted to have happen. Only on Sunday, when President Trump directly ordered them to terminate the process and ensure that Gallagher retains his distinctive seal, trident pen, and remain a member of the seals, did that process end. How has the president's relationship been with the members of the Pentagon and the military? It seems like the president inserts himself into a lot of these things. Maybe this wouldn't have been an issue, say, for the president wanting to chime in on Twitter and say he didn't agree with the way the whole process was going. How is the relationship going on there? One thing that I think you're kind of hinting at is what is the significance when the president tweets something that is related to the military. And the Pentagon has encountered this before with President Trump, who's the first president to do this kind of thing, where it's basically taken the interpretation that what Trump tweets does not constitute an order. Even if it looks like an order and sounds like an order on Twitter, they will then go to the White House and follow up and ask for a traditional order in more formal format. That seems to be the approach that they're taking to these tweets that often are directed at military leadership, saying the military will do this, the military will do that. Wesley Morgan, military affairs reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They want to control the entire drug market. And if that takes them killing other cartels or killing innocent people, they they will do it. They're cutting arms off, cutting legs off, cutting body parts off, putting heads in acid, you know, mailing it to the family members, mailing it back to the police department. Joining us now is Beth Warren. 
investigative reporter at the Louisville Courier Journal. Thanks for joining us, Beth. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about the most powerful drug kingpin you've never heard of. Now that El Chapo is in jail and behind bars, he will not be getting out anytime soon. The attention is focused on another powerful kingpin. His name is El Mencho. Beth, tell us a little bit about who he is. He's the leader of a cartel in Mexico called the CJNG, based in Jalisco, Mexico. And he's really um, become as powerful, some would say more powerful than El Chapo, even though we, a lot of us haven't heard of him until recently. The reports say that there's 5,000 members in this cartel spread across every continent except Antarctica. That seems huge. Yeah, it's pretty scary to think about, especially when you uh, learn the kind of ruthless things that they do just to maintain control and to spread fear. It's a really um, frightening thought. Now, some of the stuff is uh, you can think of as common, I guess, to a cartel, kidnappings, torture, murder. But uh, this particular cartel, or I guess El Mencho specifically, I guess, they uh, it says cannibalism here also. What, what do we know about that? Right. That is um, kind of next level, of course. And it's there are young people that they recruit, that they kidnap or recruit under false pretenses in Mexico to uh, fortify this army. And they are taking to recruitment camps in remote areas of Mexico. And there have been reports that some who tried to leave because they didn't want to join the cartel were chased down and um, tortured, killed and pieces of their flesh eaten and like a ritualistic rite of passage. Why is El Mencho in the news now? Obviously, uh, you know, El Chapo has uh, has been sidelined because he's in jail now. But why are we hearing about him now? I think that's why Chapo is serving a life sentence Mencho is basically the number one um, drug lord that the the U.S. government is seeking. There's a $10 million reward for information to help capture him. That shows you the level of the desperation to get this guy. And he he his cartel and Sinaloa are the two that are blamed for the bulk of the fentanyl that comes into the U.S. Right. And that is our nation's number one killer. So that's really the reason we should all be concerned about it. Talk to us a little bit about El Mencho and the cartel specifically and how they operate in the United States. They're buying and renting property in a bunch of different cities, obviously, so they can set up to be able to sell the drugs and traffic the drugs. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's actually really frightening that they are able to just blend in um, in communities of other word, uh, otherwise really hardworking, honest um, immigrants. And they're able to blend in and they find jobs all around us at the Mexican restaurants, farms, factories, all kinds of jobs that you wouldn't know because they're working in the daytime. And at night, they're uh, funneling all these drugs into communities, communities as small as uh, less than 7000 people. If you get a powerful enough presence there, I mean, then you're operating with nobody overseeing you at that point. El Mencho has been in the United States a few times and deported. He was trying to set up some operations in the Bay Area for some time. Right. When he was um, 19 at the at least, this is um, what I've been able to find out. When he was 19, he sneaked into the U.S. and then he, he was deported. He, he came back a couple more times. He was trying as a young adult to establish a drug trafficking business on his own or with his brother, but he wasn't doing a very good job. So he really wasn't good at that time in that role. 
it was only later when he got deported and went to Tijuana where he really started to find his way as a very successful trafficker and someone that could influence other people to follow him. So how did El Mencho become a rising star in the cartels? How did he rise to power? His parents were just avocado farmers and arose from poverty, dropped out of school after sixth grade, and he ends up being a billionaire with 5,000 followers. It is something that's kind of hard to understand how it's just he he has a magnetic personality in some ways, and he um, is very street savvy. He, you know, developed the, the trafficking side, and then he also became a Sicario or killer hitman. And he was really good at that, apparently, and led uh, a group of hitmen for the Millennial Cartel at the time. And he, uh, people gravitated to him. And he also made a strategic alliance when he married into another family. And so he made a lot of really wise, street smart choices. And um, that elevated him up to this level where he had a lot of people that were following him. And then he staged a bloody coup and, and to take over and form his own cartel. And that was like in early 2011. Now, some of the things that they say about El Mencho and why he's so powerful is the discipline that he has. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. <laughs> I like the way he wrote in the article. He exercises daily, staying in fugitive fighting shape just in case he has to uh, go on the run or something. The United States and Mexico has teamed up a few times to try to capture him. He's evaded capture all those times, including a time when uh, they tried to get him with helicopters and cartel members blew the helicopter out of the air with Russian rocket launchers or something. Yeah, that is really terrifying. Um, that actually was 2015, and that's the year when everyone was like, oh, my God, what are we dealing with here? That was basically the wake-up call where everyone understood then the um, the power that this man and his cartel had. It was, it was pretty scary, and that's – DEA has likened – it's terrorism, you know, and that year was the year of his power grab. And when he, his people, there were uh, military that were going to uh, capture El Chapo. And so his uh, Sicarios used uh, grenade launchers that you, you hold your shoulder and it releases this warhead and it pierced the rotor of one of the helicopters and sent it down into the mountains and killed several soldiers and a federal police officer. So that was when everyone was like, wow, Sinaloa never did that. We've never seen others do that. That was when everyone knew he was willing just to do anything to stay free and and continue his empire. Is El Mencho charged with any crimes in the United States? We know he's kind of been and out in the Bay Area a few times. He was deported and all that. And we know he was responsible for helping traffic a bunch of drugs, including fentanyl, as you mentioned. But is he charged with any specific crimes? Yes, he is charged um, with meth trafficking in Mississippi, uh, federal court there. He's also charged in D.C. with um, basically it's uh, for a continuing criminal enterprise, which just means, you know, and and it talks about the savagery in that uh, indictment. So one of the uh, interesting things, because we're talking about these powerful drug lords Obviously, everybody knows El Chapo, especially since that trial just went through and we got to find out a lot of the inner workings of what was happening. But how does El Mencho compare with him? From my understanding, El Mencho doesn't want necessarily all that fancy stuff, gold-plated guns and whatnot. He's more interested in the power than all of the money. 
Right. I mean, don't get me don't get it wrong. His son does did have El Mencho or Mencho's son, Menchito, which means little Mencho. When he was arrested, he did have an expensive gun. And some of his people have gold-plated guns that probably cost more than my Honda. And um, <laughs> so there's people in his ranks that do do that. Um, and I, I think his, his son looked like a yuppie, really well-dressed, lived in a fancy Guadalajara uh, condo, that kind of thing. But Mencho himself is described differently. He's described as like a, a rancher. He likes to be on top of a horse in remote areas. Um, and he does the, um, the four wheeling, that kind of thing and cock fights. Uh, he loves to bet on cock fights. So he's definitely more, um, the DA describes him as more driven by power than the fancy lifestyle. You know, he's not going to be in a, a Bugatti in the middle of Guadalajara streets, um, buying out bars and, um, paying for drinks for everyone the way some cartel leaders have done and some of them have basically been captured after you know unwise decisions they made when they're intoxicated and because he doesn't drink that's not going to happen to him so it makes them a little harder to catch and this cartel specifically the cjng cartel one of their specialties in addition to trafficking is buying corrupt police and officials and then doing away with the people that do not agree with them or do not want to work with them. Yeah, when I was in uh, Mexico for this project, I got to talk to some officials and police officers there. And it is um, shocking and saddening to hear them talk about, they couldn't tell me their names for distribution. You know, I couldn't publish their names because they could be killed. And um, the fact that they are so scared of this cartel that, they all know people who have been murdered, uh, officials, elected officials, police officers who've been murdered by the cartel. And the um, Jalisco cops I talked to, they're more comfortable sharing information with the DEA than they are with their own fellow officers. Because if they share with the officer who's in the cartel pocket, yeah. then they could end up dead. Wow. So it's it's really strange um, to think about them not feeling comfortable, you know, with the people they walk around. I can't imagine the the amount of bravery it takes to do that job. Just to reiterate the extreme violence that they use, acid baths, decapitations, and the cannibalism that we spoke about mm-hmm. earlier on. Okay, so he's on the run, obviously. We don't know exactly where, but what do we know about any possible types of whereabouts? The DEA experts I talked to, they basically think um, and that he's probably in the mountains or um, the jungles of like rural Jalisco. And when you think of Jalisco, the capital is Guadalajara. That's a major city. They're, they're talking about far away from that into um, areas where his people control. So that if the military try to come in, which is what happened in 2015, they can hear the helicopters. It's remote area. He's got the advantage. So they think it's either probably rural Jalisco or Colima. Um, and these are areas or Michoacan, where he's from. These are all like Western states, like central Western Mexico, like not that far from the Pacific Ocean. Beth Warren, investigative reporter at the Louisville Courier Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.